Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 195, recorded Thursday, August 24th, 2023. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Actually, one topic on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, notes on Holland's Tulip Festival. So coming to you today from the Travel Commons studios in Nashville, Tennessee, after a, I don't know, I'll call it a triangulating drive. Nashville to Annapolis, uh, Maryland, then up to New York City, and then back down here to Nashville. And, And in doing so, I think I managed to miss, skip the completion, really, I I think we could call it the completion of the post-COVID travel recovery. At at least that's according to the TSA checkpoint passenger volumes. The TSA website continues to update a website page with numbers from 2019 to up to yesterday, 2023, in a convenient uh, table format for easy copy-pasting into Excel. So crunching those TSA numbers starting... uh, you know, Friday before Memorial Day. So, you know, that's the generally accepted start of the summer travel season. Passenger volumes are up on average 11% over last year and equal now to pre-COVID 2019. So volumes have recovered and anybody who's been in an airport recently in a TSA line certainly can feel that. But on the uh, on the airlines Q2 earnings calls, the CEOs of the airlines, at least on the U.S. airlines, again reminded their listeners that not all passengers are equal. Southwest CEO said it's clear that travel patterns post-pandemic are not what they are pre-pandemic. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> that that's pretty obvious. And he said uh, they'd shift planes from business-oriented short-haul routes to longer routes that are aimed at leisure travelers. And they'll also make some adjustments on departure times, moving flights away from those start and end of the day departure times that flyers like me would book for when I was doing same day out and back trips. So there you go. It'd be interesting to see how all that sort of shakes out. Now, uh, completely different, I've talked in previous episodes about how one of the things I really miss moving from Nashville to Chicago is direct flights to places. Now, the other thing I really miss, and this is pretty much unequal weighting, is good Chinese food. I've found good Vietnamese food here in Nashville, very solid Mexican food, but haven't found anything like what we would get in Chicago's Chinatown. So when we hit New York City, we quickly found our way deep into Chinatown, into New York's Chinatown, joining up a 20 to 30 person queue in front of a storefront bakery, Mi La Wa, for their Chow Su Bao, you know, kind of barbecue pork buns, one of our favorites, uh, hoping they wouldn't sell out before we got to the front of the line. Minutes tick by, the line's not moving. Then somebody pops out of the bakery and yells, anyone paying cash, come up to the front. Now, as regular listeners know, I'm absolutely a knuckle-dragging cash carrier. My wallet full of 20s, and I sprinted to the front. I studied the menu. The cashier said, All we have left is number one, number five, and number 20. Uh, Fine, I'll take two of each. I gave her one of my 20s and walked back out to the street where my wife, my daughter, and I inhaled those fresh buns while the credit card gang kept waiting. As I always say in travel, it's good to have options. 
So following up, longtime listener Aaron Wooden left a comment on Twitter or X or what I don't know, whatever Elon is calling it this week. Uh, Aaron said, excellent podcast, Mark. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> he said, he said, I, I, I agree about Rotterdam. Amazing city, underrated by tourists. I took a freighter cruise there five years ago. I also love that word flaneuring. My pet term, my pet term is walk and gawk. Aaron, thanks for that. A freighter cruise. That's, I've never done that. That's got to be pretty cool. And walk and gawk. I like that. But you know, I, I think I like it even better if I can shoehorn the word entropy in there because it makes me feel that, you know, all my suffering through engineering thermodynamics was worth something. I, I don't know, maybe entropic walking and gawking. Yeah, there, there we go. There we go. I like that. A friend of the show, Chris Chufo, forwarded me a tweet saying, the way you say representative to an automated system is the real you. And as folks say nowadays... I felt seen. The way I do it, mine is a crisp, demanding agent trying to pitch the tone and the volume in just the right way to interrupt rather than wait through the three minutes of recorded verbiage. So when I had to call into American Airlines the other week, the recording pulled me up short. Hi, Mark. In a few words, tell us what we can do for you. And then that was it. No long announcement, no litany of number presses, just silence. Waiting. Uh, I'd like to talk to an agent about a reservation. I'll connect you to an agent. Your expected wait time is one hour and 14 minutes. Uh, Okay, so some things will never change. I had to call American because in their most recent retumbling of their JFK flight schedules, they kind of screwed up or at least made uncomfortable our flight from Nashville to London Heathrow. They'd shrunk the connection time between our flight from Nashville to JFK and JFK to Heathrow from six hours, which was way too long, to one hour, which was a a, a bit too snug for my liking, especially given the delays at JFK and LaGuardia and Newark that's being caused by uh, an ongoing shortage of air traffic controllers. In the last episode, I talked about the cascade of tiny delays that caused me to lose my wager, my bet, on a snug sub-two-hour connection on our way home from Amsterdam. But, you know, that was at the end of the trip, so annoying but not critical. Here, though, missing our outbound flight would be absolutely not a great way to start the trip. Uh, Though after reading about uh, the other weekend's 60-plane departure queue from LaGuardia, even a more reasonable two-and-a-half-hour connection time didn't feel safe. So I ended up skipping the hour-plus live agent queue for the chat feature in American's app. Now, actually, I was pleasantly surprised to get connected to an agent in just a couple of minutes. So I banged in my confirmation code and my ask, put us back on that original morning flight from Nashville to JFK. I just quite honestly would just prefer to entertain myself for six hours than miss the um, that, that outbound flight to, to Heathrow. Please give us three to five minutes to review your reservation. Uh, Yeah, felt like a canned response that the agent hit a button to send, which was fine with me. Being on chat rather than a live call, I could, you know, wander around, get some other things done while checking the screen every now and again for a response, which I eventually got. 
I'll have to transfer you to one of our colleagues. Well, yeah, that's fine. I had gotten that. We're 20 minutes in. So even with this, I'm still doing better than the live call queue. And in a couple of minutes, when the next agent popped on asking me how he could help, I just copy pasted my answers to the same questions from the first agent. So actually a lot easier. And then I waited for it. One second, two second. Please give me three to five minutes to review your reservation. So yeah, just like clockwork. Hit that button. Eventually he came back. As your original flight isn't available, would the direct Nashville to Heathrow flight work? Uh, yeah, it would. It would be great. But it's actually a British Airways flight. And I'd looked at that flight. And as I've talked about before, there were just a boatload more fees, fuel charges, landing taxes, that BA charges that American doesn't. So I asked, no additional charges? No, it's free of cost, the chat guy responded. I screenshotted that chat screen, that, that response, just for backup. And then told him I'd take that direct flight. Problem solved, actually, with an even better option. And got it all done and wrapped and dusted, all in less than the hour hold time for a live agent. Uh, it worked great. I, I actually got an email confirmation right after that text. And then the next day, I was able to go on to the British Airways uh, site and pick my seats. So... Uh, I don't know. I'm frighteningly happy about how that turned out. <laughs> so anyhow, on a completely different trip, I'm flying up to Portland, Maine, and I need a rental car for a side trip further up the coast to Bar Harbor to Acadia National Forest for a bit of hiking. So I hit the Hertz site and I got a big push to rent an EV, an electric vehicle. I mean, looking at the prices... It was more than a standard car, but not that much. So I was intrigued. But as I walked down the booking path, it was that booking path was just the same as a regular car with no guidance on what I think of as EV specific things like how do I pay for charging? Do I need to set up an account with someone, maybe download an app? And then what's the EV equivalent of having to return the car with a full tank of gas? So I backed out of it. I did a Google search, which, as I expected, did a better job of landing me on the right pages on the Hertz website than the Hertz website search did. Go figure. It's interesting. If you use a Tesla supercharger, Hertz passes through the charge to the car that you use to charge the rental, but without a markup, unlike what they do with, say, toll charge responders. And returning the car full, Hertz wants it above 70%, uh, the battery charge above 70%, or they'll charge you $35 for what I guess is the EV version of a refill charge, which actually I did not think was that unreasonable. So now I hit Tesla's website looking for chargers. Now there's one at a shopping mall in Portland, but nothing near my hotel downtown. And then the ones around Bar Harbor are at hotels that I'm not staying at. So I don't know. I'm tempted, but quite honestly, it just feels like more of a hassle than I really want to sign up for. But on the same token, we've talked about this uh, in past episodes, it feels like they're getting closer. It feels like they're getting closer to the appropriate level of hassle equivalence between gas and EV. It, I don't know, at least Hertz is. So maybe I'll, maybe it'll work out for my next rental. You know, I got a bit of a chuckle out of the recent flurry of travel stories about the coming of ETS. Um, I, I think I'm pronouncing that 
acronym correctly, the European Travel Information and Authorization System, kind of the, the EU's version of the U.S. ESTA. Again, trying to pronounce, trying to turn acronyms into uh, pronounceable words. Uh, as to the uh, electronic system for travel authorization, they're pre-departure authorizations for travelers who aren't required to have a visa. Now, I chuckled about this because back in January, in episode one ninety-two, we talked about this when I dug into the European authorization system in case Irene and I needed it for this April Tulip Festival trip to the. Netherlands. I found out we didn't. By that point, the May 2023 go live had been pushed back to November. And now looking at the ETS website, it's been pushed again to some much more ambiguous sometime in 2024 date. So I'm not sure what caused the sudden interest in ETS in the U.S. travel press, but, you know, the number of news stories that were just plain wrong, uh, incorrectly wailing, oh, now we'll need a visa to go to Europe, in spite of what is said in the first paragraphs of just about every EU website page about ETS. Phrases like, the ETS authorization is not a visa. I don't know, just makes me shake my head. And hey, if you have any travel stories, questions, comments, gripes, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along to comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. You can always send a Twitter and X message. I don't know what they're calling it nowadays to M Peacock like Aaron did. Post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page, the Instagram account, uh, both at Travel Commons, or you just can skip all that social media stuff and just post the comment on the website at travelcommons.com. And hey, a quick program note, at the end of this episode, there'll be a bit of a meta discussion, and I've talked about this before, sometimes when I want to talk about the podcast, so the podcast talking about podcasting, I stick it at the end so if people aren't interested, they can just move on with their day. I'll talk this time about having to DIY my own podcast metrics reporting, probably, again, probably not terribly interesting for most folks. But if you're interested, hold off on hitting the skip track button on your app when you hear the pictures of you wrap up music. So the one topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is Notes on Holland. As I mentioned in the last couple of episodes, Irene and I did a 10-day swing through the Netherlands in April, all centered around the Tulip Festival. It's Tulip Parade, Tulip Gardens, and then building other stuff around that, which meant actually that the usual Holland tourist destination, Amsterdam, wasn't for us and was instead our entry and exit point with maybe a night or two tacked on to make the logistics easier, especially when we couldn't score tickets to the big Vermeer girl with the pearl earring artist exhibit at the Rijksmuseum. So having said that, yeah, we still managed to hit a couple of places with some unique Dutchness in Amsterdam. Uh, Van Dobben, a 70, I don't know, 70-some-year-old sandwich joint that's known for their beef croquettes, which I'm told is classic Dutch bar food, a three- to four-inch-long rectangle of deep-fried breaded creamed beef served on a bun with mustard. 
you know, perfect bar food, actually. They were fine, but quite honestly, seems like the kind of food that would be best appreciated at two in the morning rather than noon. Uh, the better thing about Van Dobben, at least for me at noon, was sitting at the counter watching the waitresses give their customers, uh, which was a real fun mix of construction workers, local shop owners, office workers, and really, quite honestly, not too many tourists. The waitresses had, were just giving everybody a hard time in a good natured way. It was a lot of fun. We then had to walk off those little gastric depth charges because we had dinner that night at Vinculus, a great restaurant that received its second Michelin star the week we arrived. The food was great. Highly, highly recommended. I've got a link in the show notes. We showed up early, though, for a pre-dinner cocktail at the bar, which Irene did. Got a cocktail. But I audibled at the last minute, telling the bartender I'd never had Geneva, the Dutch ancestor to gin. And in uh, prior episodes, I've talked a lot about my gin fixation. And so I asked for his guidance, his direction. Yeah, like, point me in the right direction for my first experience. He brought over two small kind of tulip-shaped glasses filled absolutely to the rim, one with a clear liquid, the other kind of a light amber. It was a barrel-aged Geneva. There was no room for ice in either of those little tulip glasses, little tulip shot glasses. The Genevers were served neat at room temperature. It, it really was a nice introduction, and I managed to fit in just a few, just a few more of those full little tulip glasses before the end of our trip. So we actually organized the whole itinerary around Harlem, town about 20 minutes outside of Amsterdam, because it seemed, as we looked at everything, it seemed to be like more or less ground zero for our tuliping. The Tulip Parade, kind of the Dutch version of the Rose Parade, ended there Saturday night after an all-day wander through the villages to the south. And it wasn't that far from the big tulip displays at the Kuchenhof Gardens. Now, heading down to the Kuchenhof was the only time that apt-based travel payments didn't work on our whole trip. And I had talked about that in a previous episode, how it felt like I traded cash for filling an iPhone screen with apps to pay for travel, which, again, it all worked very well, except for this one time. The bus line had an app, but it didn't seem completely connected to their website, which is where uh, I had bought the tickets. And the website said that we had to have a physical printed ticket showing the PDF on our phone just wouldn't work. So luckily for us, we were staying at a hotel in Harlem rather than an Airbnb, and the desk clerk happily printed our tickets for us. Ticket hassles aside, the gardens were great. Walking through the parking lot, you know, through the ranks of tour buses, uh, I, I actually I started to appreciate what a big thing this Tulip Festival is. But I also had a building sense of dread. Is this going to be another repeat of last year's sort of shoulder to shoulder crowds throughout Italy? Actually, no, it wasn't. The Kuchenhof was a big enough place to absorb everyone with tulip beds everywhere to spread everyone out across the grounds. But we didn't really need to stay in Harlem just to see the gardens. Turns out half the tour buses in the parking lot were day trips from Amsterdam. The next day, though, Saturday, we took advantage of Harlem's location, running bikes and riding back down toward Tulip Ground Zero. Doing a spur-of-the-moment bike ride in the Netherlands is so easy, 
lots of bike rental places with very, very reasonable day rates, lots of bike lanes, and also most all of the drivers are very bike aware and very courteous. And the nice thing is, is that it's, you know, it's mostly flat terrain. I mean, let's face it, you know, the Dutch have reclaimed so much of this from the North Sea. It's pretty flat, which means you can have a good day out without having to pack the whole mammal, you know, middle-aged men in Lycra kit. We had southwest pointed vaguely in the direction of the tulip barn which is a tulip farm where you can pay to go wander and instagram your way through their tulip fields but a couple of miles north of the tulip barn before we hit it i had to stop at a big cycle network map to figure out kind of where we were and what our next turn was i mean i could figure out that the red arrow labeled you start here forgive my butchering the Dutch language, meant you are here. I mean, kind of that one was easy to figure out, but it was taking me a little longer to figure out the rest of the stuff on the trail map. In the meantime, Irene looked past the trees down one of the streets and saw a huge tulip field. So we biked over and parked our bikes and joined for free, I don't know, the maybe 30 other people, families, couples, wandering around the tulip beds. Pink, red, orange, yellow, white. It was just, honestly, rows of tulips to the horizon. But it also was a working tulip field. Guys were pulling on and pulling off bed covers. And and here's the wildest thing. This one guy driving a little machine through the bed that snipped off the tulip flowers, kind of like just topped them, leaving the tall stems. Friend, again, friend of the show, Chris Chufo, said when she saw a video of it, she said it looked like a tulip Zamboni. I mean, what the hell? What are you doing? Turns out that this field and all the outdoor fields we saw raise tulip bulbs, not flowers. So the the cut flowers, I guess, are are grown in covered fields and in greenhouses. So here, because this field is growing for bulbs, the tulip Zamboni kind of knocks off those outdoor blooms so that the plant puts its energy into growing the bulb. I mean, Quite honestly, I'm glad we got there when we did and that there was only one guy running the Tulip Zamboni. Otherwise, we wouldn't have seen these great fields. So check out the show notes again. I'll see if I can post my video of that tulip topping machine in the show notes. So later that night, much later, the, the tulip parade finally made it to Harlem. A band was warming up the waiting crowd playing 50s and early 60s rock and roll music using a vintage Cadillac convertible as their stage, which that would have fit in for me, would have made sense, say, in Nashville. But I have to tell you, it seemed a little bit odd in Western Holland, but only to me, I guess, because the crowd loved it. When the floats finally arrived, they They did not disappoint. The craftsmanship was excellent. They were all decorated. Their surfaces completely covered with floral materials, you know, tulips, daffodils, hyacinths, even cut up bulbs and nutshells to make the brown and black colors. Hence my earlier comparison to the Rose Parade. It also reminded me, though, the parade did of of smaller Mardi Gras parades in New Orleans. The, The float sponsors seemed very local, you know, nearby car and farm equipment dealerships. There were local marching bands. Now, no bead tossing like in New Orleans, but there were still a lot of folks running over to hand out things to people that were lined up along the parade route. 
And it was just the right size, the parade was, big enough to support the craftsmanship needed for these very high quality, very cool floats, but not so big that the local sponsors got elbowed out by big multinational corporations. Now, one more advantage of our Harlem location, at the end of the parade, they parked the floats along the road at the end of the route. And so at the end of the night and again the next morning, we were able to walk up to them, up close to them, through them, around them, which made me appreciate that craftsmanship even more. Now, look, I'm in no way, shape or form any sort of gardener. I have at best a black thumb. And I'm not a big flower guy. I mean, I saw a lot of guys with big full-frame digital cameras setting up tripods over tulip beds for what I can only imagine was an effort to capture the perfect flower pick, whatever that may be. But I came away more impressed than I expected to be with just the beauty of the flat Dutch countryside in Bloom. All right, that's it. That's, well, almost the end of Travel Commons podcast number 195. Remember, as always, you can find us and listen to the current episodes on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. No longer Stitcher, though. Uh, uh, Sirius XM pulled the plug on it, though I think you can still find Travel Commons on the other Sirius platforms, Pandora and maybe the SiriusXM app. You can click on the link in this episode's description in your podcast app to get to the show notes page at travelcommons.com for a transcript of the episode and links to the restaurants and sites that I mentioned earlier. If you're not yet subscribed, there's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of the page, and along the side of the page, you can find links to the Travel Commons socials. Okay, now to the promised meta content. I, I, I've used Chartable for a couple of years now to give me some basic episode download metrics. How many downloads in the first seven days, in the first 30 days of an episode posting, and then the total downloads, whatever comes with their free version. Nothing fancy. I'm not trying to sell ads. It's quite honestly just for my my own edification and enjoyment. Uh, the standard pattern for Travel Commons is a big spike in downloads on the day I post the episode, and then a steady growth after that. Usually the total downloads after seven days, that number is usually, say, I don't know, 40 to 45% of an episode's total downloads after a year. So anyhow, for the last episode, the day one number was six. Huh. I don't know, maybe Chartable is having some back-end hiccups. I've seen it take a day or so for numbers to start populating. So I look again the next day. Same thing. Huh. Uh, same thing every day that week. So now this behavior I haven't seen before. Where did everybody go? I recheck my podcast apps, Overcast, uh, Apple Podcast, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict. Yep, the episode is in there. So what happened? Now, since I self-host Travel Commons, because back in 2005 when I started, there was no alternative, uh, I can look at the server logs. So I look at the June and July logs. Yep, I can see more than six downloads of episode 194, which then sends me down a completely new rabbit hole. Why rely on Chartable when I can do it myself? Maybe write my own download counting program. 
but I'm not any sort of programmer, which led me again to ChatGPT. Now, everyone's talking about generative AI and how it's going to replace programmers, so I thought I'd give it a go. I typed, uh, write a Python program to print out total counts of downloaded podcast episodes reported in an Apache weblog file into the box at the bottom of the ChatGPT website, click the little arrow icon, and boom, outburped a program. And it actually ran. <laughs> Did what I asked. Magic. Um, turns out my ask needed a little bit of refinement, had to have a little bit of a conversation with ChatGPT. But after maybe, I don't know, 30 to 45 minutes, I had a pretty solid output, which I then pulled into Excel to slice and dice and graph and pivot because I got tired of kind of torturing ChatGPT or myself. I'm not quite sure which. But anyhow... Generative AI, look, it's not going to completely replace programmers and the like, at least not yet, but it does work at, I don't know, maybe 80% of its current hype. So there, I just thought in this kind of share my own little personal generative AI experience. There we go. So, hey, and, and if you're still here, for anybody who's still here, if you have a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Text or audio file to comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S, travelcommons.com, Peacock on Twitter or X, write them on the Travel Commons Facebook page uh, or the Instagram site or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who has taken time to send in emails, tweets, post comments on the website. I really do appreciate it. And until we talk again, take care, travel safe. Thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now. <laughs>